So my friend Molly. Hi. That's Molly. Well, Molly had this sty that developed in April 2020. Actually, it was a chalazian. A chalazian? Yeah, it's a blocked oil gland near your eye. A sty is a bacterial infection from the blocked oil gland. Got it. Okay, so she had this chalazian, but I cannot stress enough how extreme this chalazian was. It felt like cystic acne, but on my eye just like existing hurt. I was like sitting on the couch with you and if you were, you know, like to my right or my left and I had to like turn my eyes to look at you, it would hurt. She started off with hot compresses and warm tea bags on her eye, but that wasn't enough for this sucker. It got to the point where I couldn't drive anymore because I couldn't see. My eyelashes were starting to grow in different directions than they normally do and some of them were growing downward into my eyeball. And I, it, I looked, it looked crazy. And then I had lost probably like 80% of my eyelashes on my eye, they just fell out. My girl tried so many methods to treat this thing all in the middle of peak 2020 pandemic. To summarize, there were three different doctors, seven procedures requiring stitches, six shots of steroids, and four rounds of antibiotics. It didn't work. It didn't work. She did eventually find a solution, and we'll get to that. But trust me, that's not the real story anyway. This story must begin with the source, well, sources of this Chalazian. Her third doctor solved the mystery, and Molly actually saw the culprits for the first time in her office. They were just small enough to be invisible to the naked eye, so she looked through a microscope. Thriving in the pores of her lashes were thousands of teeny, tiny spiders. They looked like they were partying. They looked like they were having the greatest (laughs) night of their life. Under the lens were these long, worm-like creatures about half the depth of a credit card. Four legs on each side were squished up in the front of each of their bodies, then this fat tail trailed behind, making up most of their length. They're called Demodex folliculorum, otherwise known as face mites. And before you get all judgy, just know that you have them too. I'm Natalie Wheeler, a freelance journalist and lover of bodily weirdness, and this is Dirty Stinky Beautiful, a podcast that aims to make you fall in love with the gross science of being human. First episode, wash your face. Well, I'll back up a little bit to talk about the microbiome in general. That's Dr. Rob Dunn. I'm a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University. Rob is sort of a big deal when it comes to face mites because he ran the lab that proved that mites are on all of us. But to explain how he came to that discovery, 
you first have to understand his appreciation for all of the skin microbiome. Your skin looks like under a microscope, it looks like mountains and valleys, and it's very topographically varied. And in those mountains and valleys, you have a thick layer of microbes over your whole body. Everybody does. In those rare cases when people don't, it's really problematic. It causes all sorts of autoimmune diseases and other problems. Being healthy, having healthy skin, means skin that's covered in life. Your immune system, for example, recognizes these species as partners. It doesn't attack them. Even as your conscious mind is saying, find the bleach, your immune system is saying these are partners. Rob was on a team that made a big discovery about the animals on our skin. See, we've known that mites can be found on humans since the 1800s. We tested a lot more samples over the next couple centuries and found that about a fifth of us had these little arachnids on our skin. But Rob and his team noticed something wasn't adding up because when scientists would test cadavers, you know, dead people, face mites were found on every sample. Since there was always this kind of paradox, how could they always be on all dead people but not all living people? And so it was the sort of mystery lurking in the background. See, these mites really don't like light, so they disappear deep into our pores most of the time. At night, they come out of their homes to have sex and migrate to, you know, a newer, nicer pore. It's a lot like sampling prairie dogs, but where you can only sample the prairie dogs when they happen to pop up. If you sample the person every hour for a week, you'd probably almost always find a mite. But typically what you're doing is somebody comes in on a Tuesday on 2 p.m., and that might be when the mites are hiding. So it wasn't until 2014 that Rob's lab decided to test for DNA evidence of these Demodex mites on our skin and found that 100% of all adult human samples turn out positive. They've tested and tested thousands of samples since then and have yet to find a single adult human without these mites. Sometimes kids don't have them, but by the time we're sprouted, we share our lives with these mites. So yeah, canines may have a hidden competitor for humanity's best friend. I mean, they're almost certainly the most abundant animal on Earth. And, and I should say, like, even though these mites that we now know appear to live on all adults, I mean, they've only ever been studied in the history of uh, all science by maybe 10 people. There are actually two species of these little-known mites found on our skin. Demodex folliculorum, the type Molly saw in her doctor's office, likes to burrow into hair follicles on our eyelashes, genitals, and nipples. Demodex brevis looks like their stubbier little sibling and hangs out in sweat glands. But what's so cool is that now that we've sequenced these mites' DNA, we can find out so much more about us. There are populations of humans that genetically look relatively similar today. Like we don't see huge differences between them. And in some of those cases, what we're seeing is that we see bigger differences between their mites. With info like that, we can sharpen and shade the picture of human history. For example, we can look at human DNA to trace the patterns by which people colonize the Pacific Islands. And so we can see that in reasonable detail. This island before that island, 
but sometimes it's a little money that human DNA is relatively similar. But what we're seeing is that the mites actually record more details. And so we may be able to see more about the order in which people colonized those islands. These animals are a fantastic source of genealogy because they actually don't like to migrate that much. Children disproportionately have mites from their mothers, but they also have other mites. And so it does seem like that close contact with mothers, and it's not during birth, so it's happening later at some point. It somehow seems to spread the mites, but it's not the only place they're coming from. You'll only share mites with a few select people in your life, maybe your parents and children, a sibling, a significant other or two. It takes years of knowing someone intimately for your unique mite population to let another's in. It's wrong to think about sharing mites every day, but it's probably you've shared mites four or five times in your lifetime. It's like a metric of us. Who have you had such a relationship with that you might share mites? And it's not that many people. Depends on your lifestyle. If there were ever a test for an honest, enduring connection with another human, these mites, well, they might be it. Imagine disputes over wills being decided by mite populations. Were you too close? Yeah, but really, were you mite sharing close? We do know that for the vast majority of people, these mites are harmless. In fact, many scientists assume they're probably protective in some way, maybe munching on dead skin cells or balancing out other species. We don't notice them, a problem, but they seem present in all of us, which again is the definition of normal. That's James Hamblin on a Zoom call with very bad audio. My apologies. But he's a Yale-educated medical doctor turned journalist who wrote a book called Clean, The New Science of Skin, all about our skin microbiome. So he's a cool dude to talk to about this stuff. I like to hypothesize maybe they are helping to equilibrate the other microbes around. Maybe they're eating dead skin cells, helping us sort of exfoliate. Maybe they're doing almost nothing but causing no harm at least. I don't know. But if there were products that said this will get rid of them, my gut instinct would be to take it. But I don't think that it's the right approach. James is this baby-faced young guy with short blonde curls buzzed into that standard American male haircut. So it may be surprising to hear that he also didn't shower, at least in the traditional sense, for five years before writing his book. He didn't use any products during that time, so no shampoo, conditioner, body wash. But he did occasionally put himself under running water. He also washed his hands with soap. He's an advocate for the 20-second hand wash. He really isn't anti-shower either. The idea of this, of these practices should be to make us feel good and conform to whatever standards are mandated of us by our employers. But they aren't to sterilize us and kill all the microbes and get us germ-free. But why would we not want to do that? Yeah, your skin dries out. knows the oils from your skin. And um, that leaves you in a weird imbalance where the microbes on your skin feed on the oils. And so your microbiome is off and is dry. And if you're already prone to acne and eczema and psoriasis, you may experience 
more flares of that. You see that often where people are having irritation in their skin and they think, oh, well, I need to do more washing. I need to be more vigilant. And they're actually making it worse. You may be imagining a certain odor to this guy, but he says it just never happened. He eased his skin into less maintenance, just like you would cut caffeine or train for a marathon. So he went without scrubbing with shampoo and soap for two days, then three, then a week, then 10 days. He says his skin world equilibrated with each little change, producing slightly less oil or adjusting microorganism populations to reflect the environment. Like, oh, we don't use soap here every day now? Okay, we don't need so many oils all the time. He says he certainly didn't smell like roses. He just sort of smelled human. And Rob, our face mite scientist, says that's a smell that comes from our own special microbe mixture. Like you're in a dark room with somebody, you're watching a movie. All of the smells of that other person, good and bad, are almost all from their microbiomes. And so there are these moments when the visual recedes and, and you are encountering another person as a function of these microbes. And they're really inseparable from us. I mean, as biologists, we now talk about the holobiont, which is the microbes and the host genes, because we're finding that thinking of them separately is just problematic biologically. They're not really separable. James sees cleanliness as an extra step beyond hygiene that a person might do, say, for self-care or societal norms. I think of it much more soap as a tool like a hammer, which is extremely <laughs> valuable and useful in certain situations, but doesn't mean you want to go around just like hammering every inch of your wall every day. If you have blood or vomit or feces on you, you want to get it off because there are things that can transmit diseases to other people. It's pretty clear cut. Whereas things like deodorant and shampoo are aimed at making you smell nicer or making your hair look a more socially acceptable way, but are not aimed at preventing transmission of disease. That's not to say they're not important, but that is more in the realm of considered cleanliness. And that is much more malleable, as I think a lot of people have understood over the course of the pandemic. James is personally relaxed on his lack of showers, but not because his skin needed it. He was stuck at home in a pandemic with a sudden loss of routine. He found comfort in the ritual of hopping in the shower and scrubbing up. So now he centers himself with a morning shower instead of a daily commute. Back to Molly for a bit. So Molly and I have been friends since we were 13 and 14. We lived together when this mite infestation happened, right around the eve of our 30s. I remember her skincare routine at this time because we shared a bathroom. And I say this with the utmost love, but I sometimes had to hold my pee for a while. So I had two different cleansers. I have since graduated to one, but I would do an oil cleanse first. And then I would do just like a regular cleanser, like one that would foam up. And then after that, I would mist a toner all over my face and then I would mist rose water all over my face. And then I would put 
hyaluronic acid. This is just daytime. I would put on hyaluronic acid, then I would put on a vitamin C serum, and then I would put on an oil, and then I would put on a sunscreen, and then I would put on a moisturizer. There's no doubt that Molly's routine had some effect on her microbiome, and therefore her mites, but we don't yet know enough to tease apart how. Almost certainly it has an effect, and one of the places we see hints of the effect, like the, there's a study of indigenous Yanomami in Brazil. In those populations, there was one kid who was sampled, and that kid's skin, I don't remember, forearm or hand, had more kinds of bacteria than we've so far found on the skin of all the Americans we've ever sampled. And so that suggests something really different is going on there, but our picture is still really fuzzy. And I would say skin microbiome work, it's like a decade behind gut microbiome work. Part of rosacea, it's part of eczema, it's part of all sorts of skin problems. It's, it influences your susceptibility to viruses, but we really are still pretty early in our understanding. But there is one change we've been able to pick up on with our recent use of antiperspirants, of all things. You have these glands in your armpit that evolved to do nothing other than to feed microbes. That's why they exist. They're not sweat glands or apocrine glands. And so that's what makes armpits stink. In other species, the smell, like gorillas and chimps, that smell is important in individual recognition. It's important in mating. It probably is an indicator of health and well-being. We use antiperspirants and clog those glands. And when we do, it kills those bacteria that our body is trying to favor and instead favors these really unusual bacteria, both in your armpits and on your skin in general. Those bacteria happen to be more attractive to mosquitoes. And, and so that's like a pretty big intervention. Our skin is not that different than our larger world, where disruptions in one species can have epic, sometimes devastating effects to the rest of the planet. That can be a problem in a clean-obsessed culture, because every time we scrub down or put on that toner or disinfect, we're killing off a bit of our microbiome's population. We hope that friendly tenants will move in after, but the neighborhood needs time to settle. Yeah, like what, do we know any microbes that are on all of us and we know why? Uh, um, I think it would be kind of like asking why is there this particular kind of grass in a rainforest? It's a really complex ecosystem and everything works together and things keep one another in check. All that we really know is that things can go wrong when there's imbalance. While we can't directly tease apart why one person gets a bacterial infection or allergy, we can look at trends and see a clear correlation. With less diverse skin microbiomes comes a higher likelihood of allergies or skin problems like eczema and cystic acne. Rob and James both make clear that we don't yet know enough to prescribe the right microorganism mix for our skin, even if Instagram ads tell you otherwise. For now, the best we can do for our microscopic passengers is simply to do less. It may be counterintuitive, but James argues in his book that staying a little dirty turns out to be necessary for keeping a healthy skin microbiome. It's a balance, 
Like he said, soap is a hammer, so tap gently. Those hands need washing, but maybe you don't need to lather your whole body today. Basically, those mites ain't going away, but you probably don't want them to either. I can't say for sure if there was an environmental cause of Molly's mite infestation. We can only tease apart those causes in the aggregate, not in a specific case. She did have quite the skincare routine, but she was also under a lot of stress and is genetically prone to these skin issues. But here's what she found out. She had rosacea directly on her eye. Her glands were overproducing oil, which could be a chicken and egg situation with the mites. They love to eat that stuff, and so their growing colony was well-fed. But oil production gets ramped up the more the mites eat. Compounding the problem were the face mite cadavers. See, these mites don't poop. They just get bigger until they die. A healthy microbiome can handle this, but Molly had too many. These mites were dying fat and happy inside the gland and mixing with the oil to cause more bulk. Molly's oil glands were so plugged up that bigger and bigger chalazians kept forming to the point of no return. What we do know is a third cleanser would not have helped the situation. Molly ended up getting a bunch of rounds of a new treatment called intense pulse light therapy. It basically blasts those hair follicles with light to break up blocked oil glands. It was really expensive, insurance didn't cover it, but it worked. Now, Molly uses daily eye drops because some of her tear ducts never recovered from the ordeal. She may need that intense pulse light therapy in the future. Her doctor thinks she will have to manage flare-ups her whole life, but hopefully just with hot compresses and tea tree oil from now on. She's also tried to streamline her skincare, but she's still, well, Molly. And we love Molly. How do you feel about these mites now, Molls? I don't have the sort of affection that you have for them, no. They did sort of ruin my life for a while, but I do get that it's a complex system. Uh, I still like to attack them with my tea tree oil, though. Fair. That's right. Okay, I think that's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm on like a podcast. <laughs> Next episode, we dive into the ninja-like qualities of a placenta. Dirty Stinky Beautiful is written, edited, and produced by me and my face bites. <laughs>